Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, God's word says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of, daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountains. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hand grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by, quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lamb and lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, what wonderful words of promise. What wonderful words of hope. Lord, may our hope be built on nothing less than you alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, many of you have seen or possibly read the series, The Lord of the Rings. In the second book, The Return of the King, the people are being attacked, the people of Asgard. So they flee to this impenetrable fortress carved out of the mountain called Helm's Deep so there they can escape from the advancing enemy horde. This fortress has stood countless attacks in the past. It's well supplied with food, water, and safety. It's their hope so that they can fend off the enemy. This time, though, the enemy has new weapons in greater numbers and with explosives they blow a hole in the seemingly impenetrable wall and come pouring past the outer defenses. The men of Asgard, the men, retreat back into an even deeper hold, but hope seems to be gone. Despair and foreboding of doom fill the air, and the king even says, It is said that this place has never fallen to assault, but my heart is doubtful. The world changes, and all that was once strong now proves unsure. When life turns out different than you want or expect, where do you turn for hope? When everything seems corrupt, oppressive, unjust, where do you turn for the solution? It's been said that hope is like oxygen. Without it, you will soon choke to death. And people turn to many different places for hope. 
For some, hope and change is found from a political viewpoint. If we can just implement this economic system, if we can just get this leader elected, then we will have hope. All will be just and right. For others, knowledge found through scientific endeavors is the place of hope. Others have long given up any sense of hope. They merely exist from day to day. Their only longing is for the next hit, the next good meal, the next vacation, or their next purchase. Yet the more they pour their hope into these, the less return they get of any satisfaction. So this morning, do you have hope? Are you breathing? Or does it seem like you're suffocating? You may try to give the impression that you're happy, cheerful, that tomorrow is going to be a bright tomorrow. But if truth were known, you're despairing. You're discouraged. You wonder if anything will ever really change. You're like the discouraged king. The world changes and all that was once strong now proves unsure. Well, this morning we see that the notes of Zephaniah's message that have so far been of God's coming judgment now change. The tune is radically altered and it's now of hope, change, and joy. If you have a bulletin, you'll see on the back three things that Zephaniah points out as he ends his message. First, God is going to change his people, verses 9 through 13. Then, verses 14 through 17, God has a song of love. And then lastly, the last three verses, 18 through 20, God will gather his people. But before diving into this, I thought it'd be helpful to review, since it's only three weeks and we're done with Zephaniah. Where, what, how do we get here? What's going on? So you may remember, or you may not, that Zephaniah's a prophet. He's the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, who was a good and just king. And he, Zephaniah, is now prophesying in the reign of King Josiah. You may also remember that the northern kingdom, kingdom, Israel, has already been conquered and taken into exile, but the kingdom of Judah, where Zephaniah prophesies, still exists. And it's that kingdom where Josiah reigns. But from Hezekiah to Josiah have been two evil kings. Then Josiah comes in and he restores God's law. He removes false worship and restores the worship of God. Now, how did Zephaniah play into that? Was he the one who led the charge? Was he in the middle encouraging it? Was he at the end reinforcing it? We don't know. But he's somewhere in there in the midst. In some way, in the reign of Josiah, encouraging people to come back to the Lord. But we saw in the first sermon in chapter 1 why this needed to happen. In chapter 1, 2 through 6, we saw that though the people worship God with their lips, their heart was far from him. They had divided worship, and because of this, God was going to judge them. And then in verses 7 through 18 of chapter 1, God described his coming judgment, that there wouldn't be any escape, that there was no hope that the judgment would be done away with. However, we saw that there was hope that on that day, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that they might be kept safe on the day of judgment. So they must seek God now. They must seek righteousness and seek humility. Then last week we saw in chapter 2, 4 through 15 that the judgment was going to come. And they can know this because the judgment was going to happen to the nations to the north, south, east, and west, all around them. Even nations like Assyria that seemed like, oh, they could never be defeated. Soon God's judgment would come. And if it would come to them, 
then it will come upon Judah as well. And then chapter 3, as he went on describing these evil cities, it seems like, oh, they're so horrible. But then they realize God's talking about them. They are so much like the nations that they are the oppressive city. They who are supposed to be a city set on the hill are oppressive and unjust themselves. And so they will bear God's judgment with the nations. And then we ended in chapter 3, with verses, verses 6 through 8, with God declaring these judgments on the nations should have caused them to repent. But no, instead, they loved their sin all the more. And so due to their continued rebellion, God said in verse 8, He'll consume them with all the earth. So with all of this that has been said, the thought is, well, God's now going to tell them more of what's going to happen. But the message drastically turns to change, forgiveness, restoration. And this is going to happen, we'll see in verses 9 through 13, because God is going to change his people. It says in verse 9, For at that time I'll change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Now the idea is not that there's one pure language like Hebrew, Spanish, English, or whatever language you prefer, but more that their speech would be speaking to God, that the idea would be pure words, <coughs> Excuse me. that they would no other call on other gods with Yahweh, they'll call on Him alone. Again, we saw this in chapter 1, verse 5, where their speech was impure, because it says, those who bow down, in chapter 1, verse 5, who swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Their speech is being given to God, but also given to false gods. I shared an Irish, Irish song then. There was an old woman in Wexford, in Wexford town to dwell. She loved her husband dearly, but another man twice as well. That's how Israel is. They love God. Yeah, we love Yahweh. But we need to have these other gods too. Except here, God tells them He's going to change their speech so they will only call upon and praise Him. Their hearts and lips will be devoted to only God. And it won't just be them. Verse 10, we see it's beyond the rivers of Cush, which for them was the ends of the earth, all the way down to Ethiopia. The point is the whole earth will be blessed when God does this. You know, God's plan originated with Abram and flowed to his descendants, but it did not terminate with them. God's plan was that through them he would bless all the nations of the earth, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would worship God. And here, Zephaniah is foretelling that this will happen. And this was foreshadowed and happened at Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came and people from various languages all praised God, and everyone could understand. And Peter says, this is what's happening. He quotes the prophet Joel at this point. And he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not just from Israel, but from people all over the globe. They'll be made a people of pure speech who are worshipers of God. But he goes on in verse 11 and says that on that day, they will not be ashamed of their sins against him. This is interesting because on that day, is a phrase that has carried a lot of meaning in Zephaniah. Back in chapter 1, verse 7, on that day, on God's day, they were told to be silent. Then in chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, it described God's day, a day of horrible devastation and wrath. 
Thus, God's day meant judgment because they've sinned against the Lord. But now, Zephaniah declares that on that day, God's day, they won't be put to shame due to their sin. And the contrast of the message in this book is so strong that some scholars, you can put that in quotes if you want, some scholars have said, well, this is clearly two different people writing this book. One person couldn't write everything up to chapter 3, verse 8, and then write this message in chapter 3, verse 9 through 20. These are two radically different messages showing two radically different gods. And yet... I think that viewpoint shows more about the people making that viewpoint than the actual passage, because there's no evidence outside of the assumption that one person couldn't hold this view or one God couldn't act this way, that this is from two different people. The language is the same. There's no manuscripts that have it taken off. It's an assumption that God has to be one way or the other. That God either has to be loving and forgiving or God has to be wrathful and judging. But he couldn't be both, and definitely not in such a short space of time and writing. You know, the problem is we love to cast God in our image, our understanding of him. We want a God that we can wrap our heads around, that we can fully understand. You know, we want a one-dimensional God that we can categorize, we can explain and understand. Except God will not be squeezed into the mold's we make for him. God is. And he is no matter what we think of him. And thus God declares through Zephaniah that he's not either love or wrath or forgiving or judging. Rather, he's both. He's loving and wrathful. He's forgiving and judging. Psalm 85, even the Old Testament says this, for it says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. One God, one unity. And at the cross of Christ, we see this beautifully displayed. At the cross, we see God's love for the world and His desire to forgive the world that He sent His Son. But it was His wrath and just judgment that the only way could be through the cross. Not two different messages, but one message with two themes brought to perfection in Christ and on his cross. And it's because Christ would come and take our judgment on the cross that Zephaniah can say here, they will not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. As we sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. And because God will do this, there will no longer be any proud or haughty people in their midst, he says. Zephaniah is weaving a masterpiece of literature here because this is another theme throughout this letter. This, sorry, prophecy. For in chapter 2, verse 10, he said, this shall be their lot in return for their pride. But now they're having their pride removed. God so changes them that rather than being haughty people, boastful people, they'll be humble and lowly, verse 12 tells us. They'll seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Rather than looking to their own resources, ingenuity, or plans, 
They seek refuge in God alone. You know, a proud person thinks, I don't need any help. I don't need any advice. I know what I'm going to do. I, I figured it out. The humble person recognizes, I'm desperate. I need help, ultimately from God, and even from others. Well, to top these changes off, verse 13 tells us there will no longer be any more injustice. Every action, every transaction will be done so that it's best and right for both individuals or parties. Every deal is honored. There's no deceitful tongue in their midst. And then this section ends with a metaphor that's slightly different. They shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. I think what's going on is God is using the language of him being the good shepherd and them being the sheep. And when they realize the protection of the shepherd, they will need to fear. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, the elements of a shepherd. They comfort me. Now notice these actions occur. God's going to bring all this change because God has changed them. Not because they've gone and changed themselves. They've become better people and then God says, Okay, y'all finally got the earth the way I wanted it. I'm now going to reward you. No, He causes the change. Now to apply this, I want to put on our scuba gear and dive deep end in a little philosophy for a minute. This is going to be relevant. I hope. And we'll see that when it comes to change, we've been very influenced by philosophy of the past. We swim in waters that, though we don't realize it, are flowing from thinkers of the past. And what I specifically want to highlight is the Enlightenment. You may have heard of that. It was a time uh, back a couple centuries ago. And in that time, what happened is they took the promises of Christianity but they changed how they would be implemented. Implemented. To understand that, we need to basically understand one man, Immanuel Kant. And he's famous for saying, I think, therefore I am. Now, what Kant was trying to do was prove that he existed. Now, you may think, well, that's crazy. We just call them philosophers. He's wondering, how do I know that I exist? And he thought, well, I'm thinking... Wait, I'm thinking. And because I'm thinking, then I have to be something. And if I'm something, then I exist. And I always tell the same corny joke, and I'll tell it again here. Because Descartes, or sorry, Kant went into a bar, and the bartender asked him, do you want a drink? And he said, I think not. And then he disappeared. But nonetheless, back to the point, Kant's state epitomized a radical change because instead of looking outside of himself to know that there's reality, to understand life, he goes, I'm going to look inside myself in me i can understand what's going on i can understand what's real i can understand what's moral david wells summarizes kant's views by writing immaturity was the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another that was the ball and chain from which humanity needed to be freed thus the enlightenment's goal was to remove any standard outside of ourselves However, what is one major thing outside of us? God. God is outside of us. And thus the Enlightenment was ultimately saying we need to move away from God as our reference point for knowing truth, for knowing ourselves, for knowing what's right and wrong. So what does that have to do with our passage? Well, great question. I'll answer that. 
See, the emphasis here in the passage is that change needs to come. But that change is going to come when God acts. You know, the change is not that we just need a new economic system, or we merely need some better leaders, or we just need some more education. The world's problems are much deeper than that. We, humans, are corrupt people that need to be changed. We need to be new creatures made by God. This is what we read earlier. Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, it's a play on words. It could mean from above or it could mean a second time. And the answer is, yes, we need to be born a second time by God. It's not something we can do. We have to be born again. However, one of the effects of the Enlightenment was the thought that we can bring radical change. Thus, David Wells tells of a set of popular lectures in the late 1800s that predicted soon, through technology and all of our advancements, we'll no longer even have wars. Well, a couple decades later, they had the war to end all wars, World War I. Except that didn't end all wars. Because the problem is not that we don't have enough technology or we don't have enough education or we don't have enough wealth or the right political system. The problem is sin. And then even after that, people have predicted, well, with technology soon, we're going to get rid of diseases. We'll no longer have poverty. We're no longer going to have oppression. And we're 100 years plus. Many of these prophecies, these fulfillments of what science or education can do. And we're no closer today than then. Because the problem is not out there. The problem is in here for every single one of us. The problem is our corruption and only God can bring that change. Except sadly, our culture is very much like Judah and rather than realizing none of these prophecies that we made through human understanding have come to fruition, maybe we should rethink. Like Judah, we've dug deeper and said, no, we can be the change. So today, if you're having trouble in life, where do you turn? Well, you either turn to a counselor or you turn to yourself. But that counselor is not going to point you to God. And we even say, you must be the change. We must be the change. Now, by those slogans, we mean don't sit on your duff and wait for someone else to do action. You start. Okay, that's great. We shouldn't always wait for others. That's a great thing to understand. But I often think behind that there is this assumption that we as people, are going to be able to change the world ourselves. But see, the Enlightenment didn't really lighten the world. It darkened it. We need true light. And Jesus declared in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus, who is God, he is our hope for change, for life, for light and life. And due to the change he brings, there is a new song. And to that we turn in verses 14 through 17. God's song of love. And it says, verse 14, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. And again, this is stark contrast to what we've seen before. Chapter 1, verse 7, they were told to be silent. Or chapter 1, verse 14, the mighty warrior is going to be wailing because of the devastation due to God's judgment. But here... Rather than those responses of silence or of despair, crying out in anguish, there's joy, rejoicing, singing with all their heart. You know, what releases your full range of vocal cords? 
Is it that shampoo microphone in the shower? Is it your school's fight song? Is it the song on the radio? Well, here we're being told, because of who God is, what He's done, and what, we will, what He will do, that should bring forth the full range of our vocal cords. The joy should reverberate through our chests and come flowing out of our mouths. You know, what better news can there be than that this coming, will, these changes will come because of God? Yes, judgment may be coming, and today everything may be dire, but God's redemption has the final word for those who trust Him. And thus we can rejoice, even in our trials and tribulations, for we know that this light, momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. You know, as we look to things that are, not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that we see, they're transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. And Zephaniah tells them why to rejoice. Because in verse 15, the Lord has taken your judgments away. And the prophets tell us in Isaiah 53 why they're taken away. Because they're turned aside from us onto a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the horrific words of judgment that God declared in the first part of Zephaniah, he knew he was declaring against his own son. That these horrible words would have to be executed either on us or on his son. They were put on the suffering servant, on Jesus. And so they should rejoice. But wait, there's more reasons they should rejoice because it tells them that their enemies will be taken away. Chapter 2, verse 7, he says they'll even dwell in the land of their enemies. But there's even more reasons they should rejoice. Because it tells them that they'll no longer need to fear and God will be in their midst. You know, what brings fear in your life? What makes you anxious? Is it your children being hurt? Relatives dying? The economy collapsing? Friends not wanting to talk to you? Retirement funds not lasting. Children rebelling. Well, one day, God is so going to change the world, and He's going to so change us, that we will never be anxious and fearful again. Again, Psalm 23 gives us the reason for our trust. Because even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil, for you are with me. That is is why we no longer fear God's presence. I don't know about you, but maybe when you're a child or with your own children, there can be some fears that are so palpable and they're seemingly incurable. A long, dark hallway. The bedroom in the closet once you turn off the light. Jumping into the pool. And yet, there's that long, dark hallway and they're paralyzed until they grab their father's arm. And then they go jumping down the hallway. 
Well, the situation didn't change, but they know that in the presence of a strong and loving Father, I'm safe. And that's what Zephaniah is saying here. When we're reunited with the Lord, then we can jump and skip down the road. We're in His hands. We no longer need to fear. We are safe. And well, why? Because God's not the milk toast, weak grandfather type that is often envisioned. It says here He's a mighty warrior, a mighty one who will save. He fights and protects His people, it tells us. He's not just a big muscular gladiator, though. He's also tender and loving. For then says, He rejoices. You know, what could cause the Creator of every single thing to rejoice? It says, He rejoices over you. Incredible. Mind-blowing words. I don't know what adjectives or words come to your mind when you think of yourself. I don't know what emotions stir within you when you look at your reflection. But God sings maybe something like this. Maddie, that's my girl, the one who is my thrill. Corbin, that's my boy, the one I love a ton. Oh, that one, I love him. Janine, she's so great. She's the one with which I love to conversate. And God sings over you. And He says, you're the one I love. Well, maybe He sings something else. I don't know, but God sings over His people. He delights in us. Well, why? Because He's a God of love. Now, for many people, this is like the one redeeming verse out of the book. Woo! Finally got to the good verse in Zephaniah. That's the one you highlight. And then when you're yearly Bible reading plan, you go, oh, well, that's in there. Woo! I didn't know if I was getting anything from this book. But at least when I read this morning, we got to chapter 3, verse 17. But you know, that verse doesn't have an ounce of the meaning if you don't realize everything that came before it. Because God's not just a lover. He's also a warrior. He's also all-powerful and tender. He's our judge and our Savior. That's the one who sings over us. That's the one who is being described, and we realize that's who He is, not just this narrow, weak, only loving God. When we realize that, that's when we can be freed, that we can be transformed from our fears and anxieties, and we can be confident to sing songs of hope and joy and love. Now notice, though, that these verses declare love and hope on those who have had their judgment taken away. And it's only on those who are realizing, look, we're not good enough. And I think it's important to note that because many people, again, will only look at this verse and they'll take it out of context and say things like, you're enough. God loves you just as you are. All you need to do is be true to yourself. Well, do you hear the siren calls of the Enlightenment again? The Enlightenment wanted no external standards. And that leads to the only standard being me. Thus what matters is not being true to some outside oppressive standard like God, but rather being me. And all these philosophical ideas didn't stay up with those crazy people wondering if they exist. It's trickled down to everyday life. You may have noticed how our commercials have changed. We used to sing about how we wanted to be like Mike. Ooh, but that's oppressive. Be like someone? No, no, no. So now 
Diet Coke has a commercial, just do you. And if you're in the mood for a Diet Coke, we'll have a Diet Coke. Or Dr. Pepper sings about saluting individuality and be you, do what you do. Or Coke sings about the wonder of us and Jeep sings, if you want to be me, be me. If you want to be you, be you. Well, why did we stop singing Be Like Mike and all about being me? Because we swim in the current of the enlightenment. We think we're enough. We're all that matters. The problem, though, is not that those statements are completely wrong. It's that they're half wrong. You know, they are correct that if you live your life always comparing yourself with others, always going, am I better, am I worse? You're going to live a frustrating, discouraged life. But just because they diagnose what's going wrong doesn't mean they give the right solution. You know, the solution is not trust yourself and be like yourself. That's a damning message. Rather, we need to trust God and be like Him. We're called to be conformed to the image of Christ, not be more authentic to ourselves. And so we have to be discerning to recognize how sometimes these wonderful truths of God's Word get twisted and distorted to satanic messages about how we are enough. You know, we need the dual truths that we aren't enough, but Christ was enough for us. That we're rebels, but we can be restored. God loves us, not because of our intrinsic worth, but because of His overwhelming love and grace. You know, that's the message that brings light, life, and hope. That the cross was needed because I'm not enough, but the cross happened because Jesus loved me that much. He is my hope. And yet so often, it doesn't really appear that life is going the way it should. And we wonder, will things really ever be made right? How can it be changed? And the answer is that God will act. And that leads to the last three verses of Zephaniah, God's gathering of His people. And there's really a very clear change in what's being said because verses 14 through 17 are all about why we should praise God. And then verses 18 through 20... It's all about what God will do. Look down at verses 18 through 20. We'll notice six times God says he'll do something. Verse 18, I will gather. Verse 19, I will deal with. Verse 19, I will save. Verse 19, I will change you. Verse 20, I will bring you. Verse 20, I will make you. And the emphasis is God has to be the change. God is our hope. God will act. And that is their hope for real and lasting change. So what are these things he's going to do? Well, first it tells us in verse 18 that he'll gather those who mourn for the festival. What's going on is these people are going to be taken into exile. He's been clear on that. And while there, they're going to mourn. Oh, couldn't we be back in Jerusalem holding the feast, having all these wonderful times and days that God set apart? And God is saying those who long for him to be restored to his worship will be gathered back. There's a similar statement in Hebrews 9, 27-28, where it says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Now, what do you eagerly wait for, long for? Maybe it's the upcoming sports season. Maybe it's the end of school. Maybe it's when the family gets together. 
Maybe it's the next movie in the line of movies that you love. Oh, I can't wait. It's coming out. God says He's coming for those who are eagerly longing and waiting for Him. Are you longing for Him to return? Well, second, it says in verse 19, God will remove all their oppressors. You know, oppression can come in so many forms. It can be economic. It can be physical. It can be emotional, relational, legal, social. We can keep going. But when God comes, He's going to judge all oppressors and make the world so that there will be no more oppression. Third, God will save the lame and gather the outcast. In this place, there's no longer going to be any physical ailments. There'll no longer be anyone who's blind, deaf, or lame. Neither will there be any cliquishness or social classes where there's ins and outs. No outcasts, but rather all are loved, accepted, and welcomed. Well, fourth, in verse 19, God will reverse their situation so that they'll no longer be shamed, but they'll be praised and known. You know, often in this world, God's people are mocked, ridiculed, shamed. But when God gathers His people, things will be completely changed. Well, fifth, in verse 20, when God brings them in, He'll gather them, and their hope isn't just merely new economics, but they'll be with God Himself that we will be returned to God. And lastly, sixthly, God again reiterates that He will cause them to be known and praised rather than cursed and maligned. And one more time, I think we should note that many of these promises are what the Enlightenment promised, minus God acting. But God is saying here, I will, I will, I will. He is the one who will do these things. But this really raises an interesting question. Have these promises been fulfilled? Because it says at the very end, verse 20, When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. And let me give this illustration that may help us answer this question. Have these promises been fulfilled? Many of us have driven to a place like Colorado or other places where there's real mountains. And when you drive into the state and you see them, you go, oh, look at that line of mountains. They look like they're all together. But then as you drive up to them and in them, you realize, whoa, there's like mountains up front. And then the one that I thought was in a line is actually farther back. And then when we get to the top of that mountain, there's even more mountains farther back. Well, God's prophecies are often like that. From afar, it looks like one prophecy. But then as we drive into them, we see fulfillments near and fulfillments far. So on one hand, Judah was returned from exile. They had their fortunes restored. That was fulfilled. And yet, he told them that they'll all become humble. He told them that they'll no longer be lies. He told them that they'll never fear again. Well, that hasn't fully happened. Because you see, in the Bible, the promises have a dual, or maybe more than dual, fulfillment. Because the captivity to Babylon was not their greatest captivity. As we've said, the greatest oppression, the greatest captivity was sin. That, when that is removed, when God comes and removes sin, then all these things will happen. So let me end by, again by asking, do you have hope? Hope is like oxygen. Without it, you'll soon choke to death. In the Lord of the Rings, everyone seemed to despair of hope, except for one person. 
Aragorn. Though the enemy had sealed off all the ways of escape and they appeared trapped within the cave, he goes out and he says to them, No enemy has ever taken this place. Depart, or not one of you will be spared. Not one of you will be left left alive to take back tidings to the north. You do not know your peril. And they all started laughing. It's ridiculous. You're trapped in the cave. We got hordes of forces and you're telling us we better flee? Except then, the horn of Helm's Deep Blue, and out came the men of Asgard with their king, and a lot of other things, read the book, it's really good, and the seemingly hopeless situation brought victory. And as we look around, we can be like the king, and we go, the world changes, and all that was once strong now proves unsure. We can wonder if what we thought was safe and true actually is. Will anything ever change? Will justice ever be done? Is there any hope? Christian realizes, realize the changes of the world are not greater than the changes God will bring. Because a horn much greater than any horn in a story is going to blow. You see, in a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so we've seen this beautiful message from Zephaniah. A message of warning, but also a message of hope. So what should we do? Well, he told us we should quickly repent, for God is going to judge sin. But we should humbly trust, because God has made a way of hope in the day of judgment. We should also joyfully sing, because we've seen the fulfillment in Christ, and we could look forward to what will come, and that should lead us to lastly, continually hope, for God will one day keep His promise. And one day we will see him as he is. Let's pray. Lord, an amazing truth that words written 2,600 years ago can speak to people in a nation on the other side of the globe with completely different technology and advancements and clothing and culture. And yet you have not changed. And the real issues with this world have not changed. And so it gives us hope that you are real, that you will bring change, and that in you all will be made right. Lord, we praise you. You are so loving. You are so just. You are so powerful. You are so tender. Lord, there is none like you. May we worship you with all of our being for all of our days. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.